Headline of the first article, rotating detonation engine, sorry, <laughs> we should, I, I totally emphasized the wrong word, so. Hello, welcome to the Syntax Podcast. I'm Fernando, and I'm here with podcast staple Ethan, and Phil Anderson, who is making his third guest appearance. We have had several aborted attempts to do a podcast about statistics, so we realized that Phil has a master's in statistics, and we might do significantly better with him on board, so we're very happy to have him today. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Fernando. Nice to be here. <laughs> All right. So at Syntact, we believe in using scientific and analytical thinking to understand the world around us, and kind of understanding how statistics work and probability works helps us decide how we should interpret the evidence we encounter in our lives and draw better conclusions about our experiences. So we're going to discuss two different schools of statistical theory today and how they came about, how they differ, why it's important, and why it might make sense to use one or the other in certain situations. Phil will be representing frequentist statistics, and Ethan will be representing Bayesian statistics. Do we think I pronounced those correctly? We think you did. We, yep. That is <laughs> good start. Um, I guess I'll start by letting them speak a little bit about how these frameworks came about and what they mean. Ethan, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, so Bayesian, Bayesian reasoning um, is actually based on a theorem that's proposed in the late 1700s by this guy named Thomas Bayes. Uh, it's actually less popular in modern day use, but it's the older of the two schools of statistical thought. Um, So Bayes' theorem, uh, this thing that he proposed, essentially gives you a simple equation to calculate the probability of an event after you've learned some new information that affects your judgment about whether that event is likely to happen. Um, So what the terms you will hear a lot in Bayesian probability are priors and posteriors. So priors are like your beliefs going in before you get new evidence, and then you get this new evidence and you have posterior beliefs, which are like the outcome of incorporating these two things together. Um, To use it, you estimate a few other probabilities. Um, So you're also estimating the probability that you find that new evidence and the probability that that event would occur in the presence or absence of the evidence you found. Um, The math is basically no more than multiplication and division, but it turned out to be extremely important to the theory of probability um, and particularly useful in any fields where you're gathering more evidence incrementally. Uh, Phil can probably speak more to this part than I can, but it seems like Bayesianism is in the midst of something of like a comeback in recent years, uh, despite frequentism dominating a lot of scientific fields and studies for a while. Um, But we'll speak more about why that is later on. Phil, do you want to talk about frequentism a little? So uh, Bayesian statistics, Ethan, to your point, it kind of has a natural interpretation of probability. And frequentist statistics has... Um, an interpretation that's a little bit different and a little bit more counterintuitive. Um, But the general idea is that before you go into any sort of data collection uh, action, you should have an idea of something that you want to test or evaluate. And so a lot of data collection is viewed in the context of an experiment. And generally what you're going to do is imagine the experiment that you're conducting as just one realization of a potentially infinite number of hypothetical experiments that you could do. And based upon this initial hypothesis that that you have, um, you're going to assess whether or not the results that you're seeing in the current experiment that you're running are um, something that's really meaningful or something that 
could have just occurred by chance. And if the, um, if the results that you get are extreme enough uh, compared to um, these things called reference distributions, which we may or may not talk about, um, you, you, you basically say like, this isn't a unique event, this is exciting, this is encouraging, this really means something. And if it's not, you just say, oh, well, this doesn't really do too much for us, this isn't interesting. So um, this, this has been the dominant uh, train of thought uh, for most of the 20th century. Um, this was established by mainly three people. Um, the biggest name is probably Ronald Fisher. Um, he invented things like experimental design and analysis of variance. Um, but the other two big names were uh, someone named Jersey Naiman and then Egan Pearson, and they created something. Man, those are uh, some names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, J J yeah. So Jersey Naiman is uh, is Polish, and then Fisher and Pearson are both British. Um, and Naiman and Pearson created something called the Naiman-Pearson uh, Hypothesis Testing Framework. Um, and one interesting side note is that uh, Egan Pearson is very often confused with Carl Pearson, who is his father. And Egan is much more highly regarded in the world of statistics than, than Carl is at this point. Um, so that's just an interesting little aside. Judging by Phil's uh, facial expression, that's probably really funny to people who know more <laughs> yeah. about the history of statistics. <laughs> Inside stats joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, for something that like maybe more people can relate to other than stats history jokes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, but frequentist statistics is what a lot of people have seen if they read about like different science reporting where they talk about uh, the confidence interval of an experiment and interpreting results in that way? Yes. So the vast majority of people who have ever taken a uh, statistics course um, have likely encountered frequentist statistics. And so that, that's where we get concepts, uh, to your point, like confidence interval. Um, it's also where p-values come from. And I am sure we will get all into that later, but uh, p-values are one of the big critiques of frequentist statistics, at least today, um, and part of why Bayesian stats are um, becoming more and more popular. But if you've just taken like one stats class in your life, um, that would have been majority frequentist, and they might have covered Bayes' theorem, but you probably didn't do any actual um, Bayesian stats. All right. Um, so when we were setting up this pod, there was some debate about how we can effectively communicate um, Bayesian and frequentist principles, and I guess you guys can tell us if this does end up being effective. But how we're going to do it is I'm going to introduce little by little um, one article to these two uh, listeners, or, well, two podcasters who are serving as listeners, and as they hear more of the article, they'll update their thinking on whether they think they'll like the article. Um, and Ethan will approach it from a Bayesian point of view, and Phil from a frequentist point of view. Did I get that more or less right? Yeah, I think before we begin, Phil and I can speak a little bit about what, what the strategy of, of our school of thought is going to dictate that we do. So, as a Bayesian, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a prior po probability. I'm going to estimate what the probability is that I like any given article on the internet. You know, maybe I like only 20% of articles on the internet or something like that. But every time I'm presented with new evidence, which in this case is something like the title or the first sentence, each piece of evidence I receive allows me to update that prior and form a posterior probability, which is the new probability of me liking the article given all the things I've learned so far. And this is iterative, so at each step I will build upon the prior that I started with. Yeah, so for the, for the frequentist, uh, from the frequentist standpoint, like we're not going to do any sort of uh, incremental 
adjustment of anything. What will happen is before we before I hear the article, um, I will have basically a success criterion. And I'll say, um, if I hear a certain number of sentences that are in the article, and I like more than 30% of them, for me, that's good enough to say, I like this article. Um, I have a very low standard, um, as, as you can probably tell. And so what will happen is, as I keep hearing sentences, um, I'll keep track of that. Like, did I like sentence one? Yes. Did I like sentence two? Yes. Three? No. And I'll kind of tally those up. And then when we get to the end of some period that um, uh, is fixed ahead of time, um, after we collect a certain amount of information, then I'll make my decision, okay, maybe I liked uh, 10 out of 11 sentences, and so that, that is a, a meaningful number, or maybe I liked uh, 3 out of 10 sentences, and that's too close to the threshold to actually make a call. So correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, but we're treating the sentences as sort of a sample of a larger population, which is the whole article. Yeah, so the way that we would View, view it for this exercise is the, the article is the population and every sentence coming from that article could be considered one observation from that, that population. And so we're only going to hear a portion of the article because we don't want to bore our listeners. I don't know what the actual article is. It might actually be quite interesting, but um, <laughs> every, every sentence is like one observation. And so as, yeah. we, as we collect more, we're going to get more and more confident about uh, our results. So listeners, I think a, a good analogy to this frequentist approach is a little bit, uh, you can think of it a little bit like political polling, where you're, you're drawing a small sample of a larger group of people, and you're estimating what the larger group of people thinks and their opinions based on the small sample you have. In this case, we're doing that with an article. Okay, I think, uh, Fernando, if you're ready to start us, we can give this a try. Yeah, so for the first one, I'm going to stop after the headline, and then I'm going to read two sentences, and then I'm going to read 10 sentences. And... Um, Ethan, are you going to give your thoughts after each, at each little break? Yes. Okay. Headline of the first article is, Rotating detonation engines could propel hypersonic flight. I'm intrigued. Intrigued by hypersonic flight. I'm intrigued by rotating and detonation, <laughs> which all sound <laughs> very dangerous. Certainly a lot is happening. Um so let me let me take everybody through my process. So I, I'm starting with the assumption that I like about 20% of articles on the internet. So given that you picked some article essentially at random from the internet, I'm going to say there's a 20% chance that I like it. Um, but this, this article, with the headline at least, leads me to believe it's significantly more interesting than I expected. But I don't want to be too skewed by the new evidence, uh, which is very positive, or too skewed by my prior, which is fairly negative. And so essentially, I'm not going to do all the math on the podcast because it's boring. There's a way we would derive an exact number from this. But for the sake of heuristics, I'm going to say this updates my posterior probability of liking the article to be about 35%, I would say. So still not all that high because all I have is one new piece of information. And that new piece of information, you know, I could have a good title on a bad article. So I can't make any more judgments than that. All right. Ethan's at 35%. Um, here's the next couple sentences. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin presented his country with a belated Christmas present, the avant-garde hypersonic missile. According to Russian media, it's capable of reaching Mach 20. Okay, so things have taken a twist here. This article seems to be about politics and, uh, and world news. Which is good, because in general, I like those things. But it also seems that it's going to be less about the uh, the amazing engineering behind this rotating, exploding engine. Um, so I'm going to say that these two sentences have led me to believe 
the article is a little better than average. And so this is a less powerful update of my prior than last time. This new evidence is not quite as compelling to make me think the article is good, but it's still something. Um, and so I'm going to update my posterior from 35 to about 45% this time. And now I'm going to do sentences 3 to 11, just because that ends us on a paragraph ending. Okay. Um, if its ability to conduct evasive maneuvers at high velocity is as good as the Russian president boasted back in March, it would render missile defensive defense systems effectively useless. Cold War recidivists aren't the only ones hoping hypersonic technology will deliver a futuristic throwback. Last month marked the 15-year anniversary of the Concorde's final flight, but right now, a handful of aerospace outfits are working to leapfrog supersonic travel and launch straight into the Mach 5 world of hypersonic propulsion. Hypersonic isn't just buzzy reboot jargon for supersonic. It's a word scientists and engineers use to generally describe air travel between Mach 5 and Mach 10. That's 3,800 and 7,600 miles per hour. Aircraft traveling faster than the speed of sound need all sorts of heat shielding and aerodynamic redesigns. But really, all that stuff is secondary to propulsion. Without speed, there is no need. Standard jet engines won't cut it. The rotating detonation engine, though, just might. Man, it's a long 10 sentences. Okay, so here's here's what I'm going to say. Um, so I was going in with a 45% chance of liking the article up to the point of hearing these next, what, seven sentences we heard? Eight, um, yeah. Eight. Um, so it's very unlikely that I would find that many sentences in an article uh, that are that interesting if the article isn't. So I think that those sentences were very interesting. I actually learned a new word. I was unaware of the meaning of hypersonic. And it's also very relevant in like, a, uh, a world political environment way because it's about defense. Um, so I, I'm very interested by that. And it's a pretty powerful piece of evidence, unlike some of my past new pieces of evidence, because there's a lot there in the sample, right? So if a full paragraph of the article is pretty strong, that's almost like getting several new pieces of evidence. And so I'm going to say it's really unlikely that I would have found that evidence if the article weren't good. And so I would update my prior quite a lot. And so my posterior of liking the rest of the article might jump up to like 70 or 75%, I would say. All right. And uh, right before we get to Phil, um, I'll just point out that like that is kind of a frequentist thinking of larger sample makes a more accurate observation. But that's factored into the Bayesian formula because one of the um, factors is how likely is it that this proves that this piece of evidence proves your hypothesis that you will like or dislike this article. So some of that information is kind of baked into the formula, right? Or at least it can be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word proves exactly, but um, basically one of the probabilities you have to estimate is how likely is it that you would find this evidence if the thing you're wondering about is true or isn't. So it's, it's not very likely that I would find a whole paragraph I like in an article that isn't interesting. And it is pretty likely I'd find a whole paragraph I like in an article that is. So a paragraph is larger, so it's less likely to occur in the, uh, the counter condition, basically. All right. Phil? Yeah. Um, so basically, be, so before, before we started all of this, um, as I kind of mentioned, like I, I set up my initial hypothesis, and that was that if I like uh, on average more than 30% of the sentences that I hear uh, and if that is far enough away from that proportion is far enough away from 0 0.3 um, I'll say I like the article and so one one assumption that I'm making that I think is probably worth mentioning is that um, 
when you're doing this, usually assume that all of the uh, observations are independent. Um, obviously, that, that's not the case here because we're, we're hearing sentences from a paragraph and they're all related. Um, Can you but, explain what you mean by independent, Phil? Yeah, so like, like they're not related to each other. So to, so say that like, uh, to like the political polling, we wanted to figure out um, the typical political persuasion of a resident of Cincinnati, Ohio, where Ethan and I are both proud residents. Um, and so we would go around uh, selecting people at random. But the thing is, uh, what if we both limited our selection to the neighborhood that we live in? Um, that's not a representative group of Cincinnati. And so those observations are not totally independent. They're all related in some way. Really, what we would need to do is, is travel around the city at great uh, expense of cost and time, selecting people <laughs> who, uh, who were really representative and random. And so that's what we mean by, by independence. And what we're just going to pretend that all the sentences in the paragraph are independent um, and that they, they don't relate to each other in any way. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which would be a terrible <laughs> But yeah, that would be that would just be awful. It would be a little more independent if we took like ten re- sentences from throughout the article. I'm mean, obviously right, so much and then related, scrambled but, them. Right. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's a good that's a good call out. Um, so basically, like as as we listen to it, um, you know, I I mark down at each sentence whether or not um, I thought that sentence was interesting upon hearing it. Um, by the time we got done, what it turned out that I did was I actually checked off. Um, I liked every sentence that was about the. Um, technical subjects, so the actual uh, engines and the uh, speed like categorizations. Um, I'm not a big politics fan, so I just checked off zero any time that Russia or Putin was mentioned, um, or, or Cold War. And so I ended up with, uh, with eight out of 11 sentences that I liked. And so I'm not, not going to actually conduct the test now, but what I would basically do is say, okay, um, based upon a hypothetical experiment uh, such as this one where we had 11 observations pulled, so the headline and the uh, 10 sentences, or I think it was 11. Well, that's, that's what I If counted. you include the headline. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, you know, compared to other, ex- other experiments with this exact same setup, um, is getting 8 out of 11 meaningfully different from a 0.3 proportion? And so it would basically... Uh, go through some math. Um, we would create something called a confidence interval. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we really want to get into the nuts and bolts of that, but we would basically compare that 8 out of 11 to a 3 out of 10 hypothetical average. And we would say, is this a strong enough result that we feel strong, feel strongly that we can reject um, the idea that this is equal to 0.3? Um, and this, this would actually be a pretty close one, surprisingly. Um, I think it's like right because on the, the edge. sample is so small. Just, just because, yeah, because like you don't have a lot of data, and it's like when you start getting to that that few records, you really have to be careful. Yeah. So what's what's interesting in in Phil's approach as a frequentist here is that he's essentially conducting some sort of test to determine uh, whether he can meet a certain threshold of confidence in his answer, right? Like, is is it more than 50% likely that I will like this article? Or is it more than 30% likely that I will, I will like this article? And so the output of this frequentist approach is a yes or no based on that test. Is that right? Uh, yeah. 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 And on the other hand, with Bayesianism, actually, you're updating a probability repeatedly. So you input some probabilities. And at the end, what you get out is just a probability, the probability that a certain thing is true in the end. You're not testing a yes or no of whether something exceeds a threshold. Yeah. And so another point on the uh, on the frequentist stuff is, is that if you've listened to this, you might probably uh, familiar with the term p-value. 
And basically what happens is when you conduct these tests, you produce something called a test statistic. And these very clever statisticians and mathematicians uh, over the years have created these things that have very nice theoretical properties and, and conform to these statistical distributions. And so the most famous of those is something called the normal distribution. Um, and that's the, the famous like bell curve. And so when your teacher penalized you for you know, scoring an 87 out of 100 on a test and that was considered like a C, you can thank the bell curve for that. And so what you'll basically do is uh, see where your results lie on that and you'll produce something called a p-value. And the p-value is the probability that you would have seen this result um, by chance alone. And by convention, that's, that's taken to be um, usually less than 0.05 is, is a good number. So if, you got, if there was like a 4% chance, for example, that your results were due to randomness, you would feel pretty good that these were meaningful. Um, if it was like 20, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel that great, and you'd probably say that was inconclusive or, or not good. So that's what, that's what a p-value is. Right. And while, while we're on the math topic, I guess you can point out that like if you do have the normal distribution, that bell curve, what Phil just described about the p-value follows like directly just from a purely mathematical point of view. So if you have that normal distribution, everything else that you said can be derived um, analytically in contrast to the Bayesian approach where at every step of the way, there's kind of an estimation and judgment factor of how important is this piece of evidence and what was my prior? Is that right? Uh, for, for the most part. Yeah. I think at the end, we'll get into a little bit where the judgment comes into frequentism because there is some judgment. It's just not as, as clear where the judgment is, I think. Yeah. And the, it, in the simpler, um, in the simpler scenarios, like the one that we're kind of going through here, the yeah, you can definitely get everything analytically, which is which is cool. That's true for both Bayesian and frequentist. As you get into more complicated ones, um, it's not going to have an analytical solution. You have to estimate stuff, um, and that's that's actually what has led to Bayesian statistics not being as prominent until recently. But I'm sure we'll get to that. You you can't get everything analytic for analytically no. from Bayesian though, no. right? Because with Bayesianism, you have to make some prior estimations. Yeah, so there's there's a this is kind of getting into the weeds, but there's a so that Bayes formula, the probability of you know a given b, blah blah blah, that breaks down into something where the posterior probability, as you mentioned, equals the prior times what's called the likelihood, and it's it's said to be proportional to that. And so there are some situations where you have uh, what's called a conjugate prior. And the conjugate prior is um, when there is like a very nice analytical solution where the, the prior times the posterior equals this, or the prior, excuse me, times the likelihood equals this really nice closed form uh, uh, posterior distribution. And that's the case maybe in like three or four different scenarios. Um, and so one famous model is the beta binomial model, um, where that's the, the prior and the likelihood function. Um, but once you get beyond those types of situations, like the ones that we just discussed, um, you do have to start estimating everything and it's no longer mathematically tractable. Interesting. Okay, shall we do the next one? All right, let's do the next article. Um, the headline, this is China's Gulag for Muslims. Ethan? Okay, um, so far, well, so far I think Phil's not gonna like the article. I think <laughs> Phil doesn't like world news and politics. It doesn't sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not thinking about that yet because he knows he can't just draw it from one sample. Yeah, he doesn't have the sample. That's um, right. <laughs> so let's see. Um, so I'm going to start from the same basis as last time. My prior is that I like, uh, what did I say, 20% of all articles on the internet? That honestly seems high, but we're going to stick with that. So I like 20% of all articles on the internet. 
uh, as long as they're not from the ringer on <laughs> ongoing podcast joke. Um, so, uh, 20% chance. And then I get this new evidence. This article sounds, uh, pretty dark, pretty important in the grand scheme of the world that we should like know what's going on here. But like, am I going to find it interesting or enjoyable? Mm, not so sure. It's, it's not convincing me. Um, I'd say it makes me think uh, that it's still more likely than 20% that I enjoy the article, though. But it's not, like, super compelling evidence in the way the last the last headline was actually pretty strong. And so I'm going to update my prior to be a posterior of not 20%, but 25%, just a moderate increase with this new evidence. All right. Next two sentences, or first two sentences. In modern-day re-education prisons... Beijing is forcing ethnic Uyghurs to forsake their religion. Why don't Muslim governments rise up in anger? So, uh, actually, to me, this doesn't give me much new information at all, because this basically echoes exactly what I thought the article would be in the headline, uh, what I thought would be necessary from the headline. Uh, This evidence isn't really any new evidence to me at all, if that makes sense. And so I'm going to stay at 25%. This doesn't update my prior at all. All right. Sentences three through... Yeah, I think we're going to do 10 exactly. One of the darkest episodes of the 20th century was the Gulag, the Soviet system of forced labor camps where dissidents were imprisoned in terrible conditions, often to perish. The camps were established by Lenin, expanded by Stalin, and finally exposed to the world by the great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yes. Wow. I actually listened to a podcast that speaks about him sometimes. Yeah. With his 1973 masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago. Thin strands of human lives stretch from island to island of the archipelago, he wrote, and it is enough if you don't freeze in the cold and if thirst and hunger don't claw at your insides. Today, Russia's gulags are long gone, as is the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that operated them. But now, another dictatorship, ruled by another Communist Party, is operating a new chain of prisons that evoke memory of the gulags. More modern, more high-tech, but no less enslaving. These are China's re-education camps, established in the far western Xinjiang region, where up to a million Chinese are reportedly imprisoned in order to be indoctrinated. Okay, so uh, this evidence actually uh, points to the fact that I've already read about the story. I can't be certain. I don't have the whole story. But I think I've already read most of a story about uh, the same topic. And so will I find the rest of it interesting if I'm pretty convinced it's something I've already read? Um, Probably not. Now, that evidence, like I said, isn't uh, certain. It may be that the rest of the article contains information that I haven't read before. And so I can't be too strong in my interpretation of this evidence. But I'm actually going to drop my my prior down to be a posterior of just 10% after that. Wow. Okay. Pretty strong, uh, reasonably strong evidence, I guess against it being enjoyable for you in your estimation um so so actually that was that was quite interesting um so even though i don't like politics i did recently engage in a china deep dive um, where i learned everything that i could about china and the chinese technology firms um and so what did this, what did this deep dive look like did you go there uh, I, I know that's 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 pending we'll we'll try to work that out turns out that traveling to china is very time consuming yeah um, <laughs> not if there was hypersonic flight not no. In in that case, that would be that would be nice. And our first article could <laughs> really really bring us there. Um, yeah, but it's, it's interesting because there was a um, there was a company that had patented uh, gait recognition. So gait being like the the style of walking that like a person or an animal has. 
And there was concern that that gate recognition was going to be used by the Chinese government in Western China uh, to basically identify dissidents. Um, so if they found, so they already have um, facial recognition uh, tracking, but if somebody's able to disguise their face or alter it in some way, um, people generally walk the same unless they undergo some sort of uh, injury. Um, and so that was that was actually pretty interesting. I gave that ten out of ten likes. Wow! Um, wow! And so using the same framework as before, um, it, it would again be be fairly close, but I think this one would pass. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what you're saying is that if uh, if the evidence you have, or if if enough um, enough elements in your sample yeah. uh, are positive, you yeah. can overcome the effects of having a small sample. Yeah. It's it's like it's like when you have something that's so overwhelmingly um, headed in one direction, even though you only have ten things. Again, assuming that they're independent. Well, if we just keep getting things like this, um, I think it's going to be greater than than zero point three. Cool. Um... So I think that concludes our article. So maybe we should talk a little bit about the difference in our styles and um, and how this can lead you to different results, right? So it's kind of tough here because Phil and I actually have different tastes in articles. So we weren't quite proceed- proceeding the same way. Um, but what, what I think, I hope that uh, you did here is that basically Phil is setting up these thresholds where he says, how likely is it? that I like the article in the end and set some number on that. What did you set there? Was that point uh, three? Yeah. Yeah. Testing whether it's more than 30% likely he likes the article in the end. Uh, and then he performs a test based on marking each element of the sample he has as favorable or unfavorable. Um, this classification doesn't have to be favorable or unfavorable. It's just a way of classifying each sample within or each element within the sample. Um, and then based on, purely objectively at that point based on what you've said about the sample you can derive some uh you can say yes or no is it likely over 30 percent that i like the final article and you can set that threshold wherever you want yeah and with bayesianism um i was setting prior probabilities and each time i received new evidence i was updating those prior probabilities to uh reflect a new posterior is what we call it and then i use that new posterior as the prior at for when i received the next uh, the next evidence each time and built out in the end a probability, not a test of whether something was true or false. Uh, and mine was the probability of whether I would like the article. Yeah. And it, it's one, one call out to it, you know, to your point that you don't actually have to have like zero one type type data. I mean, you could have uh, data be in any, any form. So we could go through each sentence and I could rate on a scale of one to 10, um, how excited each sentence got me. And that would be uh, like a continuous metric. Um, maybe, maybe like uh, sentence one was like a, you know, a 6.2 and then sentence three was like a, a, a three, for example. Whatever your measurement devices are, they're terribly precise. They, they are extremely precise, but that, that's just me. Um, <laughs> another one would be like, uh, like a count. And so uh, one quasi fun example, I think it's fun. Most people wouldn't. Uh, if you go to the grocery store, you can count the number of people in line. And maybe uh, maybe in line in front of you, week one, it's uh, it's two people. Maybe the next week, it's it's three. You can't have like three point two. Um, we can't get that precise. It's just it's just a person, um, and so that's that's another example as well. Phil, why have we ended up using frequentist statistics uh, so much in industry and in scientific trials? Yeah, so um, I, I think I think it's a it's a bigger question. It's like why why did we use frequentist statistics just in the 20th century versus Bayesian, because I think I think Bayesian, like um, for a lot of people, it has a much more uh, 
uh, natural interpretation. Like when you think what is a probability, I think most people just naturally gravitate to the Bayesian uh, point of view. And, and the frequentist point of view, you have to kind of perform mental gymnastics um, to actually understand like what's going on. Because you know, the, interp the interpretation that I gave earlier was definitely not as clear as what you did, just because it's yeah. just the nature of it. And there's a lot of setting up an experiment in a different way than Bayesianism requires. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, the big reason that, that we didn't see Bayesian, there, there were a couple. Um, one of them is logistical, just in that uh, in the simplest examples, and I kind of mentioned the conjugate uh, priors before, in the very simple examples, there are mathematical solutions. But in the cases where there are not mathematical solutions, um, you have to basically estimate all of these different parameters. And uh, the way that the Bayesian statistics views parameters in more complicated models is as something called a random variable. And so in statistics, or frequentist statistics, um, if I wanted to estimate like the uh, average age on this podcast, for example, of the people talking, I might just come up with a number um, and uh, I would give that, that firm number. But with, with Bayesian statistics, I would produce an actual distribution of expectations. Um, and in order to get that distribution, um, you have to do something called sampling. And, you have, and typically that takes the form of things called Gibbs sampling or uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo or in a more modern uh, context, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. And these are things that all require an enormous amount of computational power because um, you're basically going to be doing like tens of thousands of iterations of sampling over some posterior space. And I mean, we didn't have computers that could do that in 1910, uh, for example. Or, or if we did, they, they weren't publicly accessible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we didn't. Um, and so that, that's one, one of the drawbacks is that you, just, you, you get to a certain point and you just need computers to actually do the work. The other, the other reason has to do probably with Ronald Fisher, um, and this is one of his, one of his uh, probably historical critiques, um, is that he was a very staunch frequentist. Um, and I learned yesterday, I actually created a third branch of statistics called, uh, it was like fiducial inference or something, um, that apparently was, he, he like did some early work on this and was like immediately bashed. Um, and so I, I realized that it wasn't important and didn't read anything else about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was, he was like a very staunch anti-Bayesian. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what his motivations were for that. Um, but he, uh, he came out pretty strong against it. Um, so basically, like once you get beyond the basics, um, I think frequentist statistics in a, in a kind of like more basic and then intermediate sphere, and then also in an advanced sphere, like... You, you can do more things by hand because you basically have you can basically store these large tables of reference distributions in very thick books and you can just look them up which anybody who's taken a stats class has had to do yeah. at some point yeah you've had that like uh, the Z table where you're just kind of like scrolling through looking at the degrees of freedom and so one other reason that uh, I think frequentist statistics did start to become more important or was more important than Bayesian stats over the 20th century um, is, is the idea of a p-value and so the p-value provides uh, a very controversial but still uh, very convenient decision mechanism um, by which we can by which we can use the data. Because if we decide ahead of time, um, if I see a result greater than uh, some value, I'm gonna I'm gonna proceed, and if I don't, then I won't. Um, we can really action on the data. Um, with Bayesian stats, 
you, you can create heuristics that will allow you to do that, but it's a little bit, it requires you to take more of an intimate view of the data and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to rapid decisioning in the same way. So if I tell a decision maker that there's like an 87% chance that uh, some marketing action will result in $100,000 in sales, like what are they going to do with that information? Like is 87% good? What if I told them 74%? And I, I don't know what, what they do with that. But if, but if I can create a sort of uh, test framework and say like, yes, go for it. We did some analysis or did an experiment and uh, this worked out or no, don't go for it. Um, that, that's a little bit more convenient. And so I think that's, that's a real uh, underappreciated uh, aspect of frequentist statistics that, to be honest, though, is, is often criticized with something called p-hacking, um, which is when researchers will basically take data that they have and slice it as many different ways as they possibly can, looking for something that's significant. Um, and so it's gotten a bad rap on account of that, but that's more the researcher's fault than statistics' fault. I will say, so that, and this is something I, I think I briefly mentioned earlier. So the idea of frequentist, frequentist statistics having this objective test that, that returns to you an answer that can't be argued with, right, is really appealing. And that is the, the reason that it's appealing to decision makers, because you can say like yes or no, which is really yeah. nice to get a definitive answer. But um, I think a lot of subjectivity is hidden in that, that seemingly objective measure. Yeah. Uh, for a couple reasons, because in, in one case, you have to choose what your decision threshold is. Yep. You have to say, like, do I am I wondering if this is at least 95 percent true or 99 percent true? And your yep. decision on that number is what what the P value comes from. Um, and your decision on that number has a huge impact on what things are going to turn out to be yeses and what things will be no's. So already right there, we've hidden some subjectivity. And at the same time, you also have to make a subjective judgment over whether your data truly is uh, of the form that it's sampled from a larger population and that it is sampled in a in an unbiased random way So like Phil was explaining earlier independent sampling So you if you're going to use the frequentist methods have to say yes My data is sampled in the proper way and satisfies these assumptions which in general I would say people probably don't check they certainly don't check all of them. They may check a few um, but verifying that your data is of such a form that you can use these tests is not trivial um, However, people in general apply the framework anyway with the assumption that it probably is. And that's another layer where there's like, there's some hidden subjectivity and some hidden assumptions going on there in this seemingly objective outcome. Yeah, and going back to our, to our article example, like there's a number of uh, subjective points in there. So for example, um, I decided that if I liked more than 30% of the sentences that I heard, um, then I would, I would say that yes, I'm go I like this article. But that 30% was totally, was totally subjective. Um, and then something that I didn't really talk about was the test that I was doing was something called the binomial test, but there's different ways to execute the binomial test. There's uh, something called a large sample approximation um, where your reference distribution is the, the bell curve, um, but there's also exact tests for smaller samples. And so whether or not you use, which of those tests you use can actually impact your results. Um, and so there's a lot of a lot of choices and decisioning that's that's kind of hidden in there that gets lost when somebody doesn't know as much about it and they want to criticize something. It's very easy to latch on to um, certain aspects of frequentist statistics, but if if you really know what you're doing, there's a lot of subjectivity. Well, I was going to bring up an example that Nate Silver talks about in The Signal and the Noise regarding Bayesian statistics, where he talks about how the probability, even though it might seem kind of like oh, there's a lot of judgment and estimation. If you pull those estimations off known 
data that can actually give you a more reflective probability of certain events. Specifically, he talks about the occurrence of false positives among mammograms for women of a certain age. And if you're uh, randomly testing a woman for breast cancer who is in an age range, I think he talks about below 50, maybe below 40, where the occurrence of breast cancer is quite low. In other words, your prior is already low. Even though the test is reasonably good and has some false positives, but not that many overall, because your prior is so low, a false positive is actually a false positive is not is not more likely, but more of your positives from that population will be false positives. So that is drawn from like a pretty objective and data driven background. Yeah, and that that's very useful because this happens a lot actually in uh, in tests for relatively rare conditions. This is not unique to the this uh, breast cancer screening. In general, if the people you're screening are vastly vastly more likely. To, to not have a condition. Even if your test has very few false positives, when it does show positives, they're more likely to be false because the condition is so rare in general. Yeah, one, one other thing too, um, kind of to that point, is that the when you start getting into situations where you have a ton of data, the, the Bayesian methods and the frequentist methods do start to look very similar, um, at least as far as results go. Um, I, I've done tests with this where I've I've basically run regressions with like tens of thousands of observations. And if you run the frequentist regression, um, which is basically a prediction mechanism, because I guess we haven't talked about that. If you run the frequentist regression, it will look exactly the same as the Bayesian regression, at least as far as like model parameters go. Um, and unless you use just absolutely absurd priors, they're, they're going to converge to be pretty much the same thing. And I think that speaks to the fact that these are not like, Neither of these are bad ways of thinking. Like, if you throw enough evidence at either of these logical frameworks, yeah. you're going to converge to the same conclusion because you're taking in evidence. How you interpret it, like the math of how you interpret each piece, may differ, but um, they're both sound in leading you to a rational conclusion. Yep. Often, I think the situation you're in should determine which one you use because it, it seems in my mind that you're often presented with evidence in a different form or rather what you are presented with evidence in different forms throughout your life and sometimes the evidence fits better in one framework or another so i mentioned earlier political polling but really any case where you're drawing a sample out of a large population that is like literally exactly what uh frequentist statistics are made for that is like the perfect situation um there are other things especially in simple events so i think like life events where you are presented new evidence about how the world is and you have to update your own beliefs, that seems like a very good case to use Bayesian uh, statistics in my mind. And yeah, so Bayesian statistics, and maybe we've talked about this, um, doesn't require like a large population. It can be applied to um, a one-off event and what it might indicate about some greater your findings will just be correspondingly weaker yeah but in in frequentist statistics i believe you'll just fail the test of something being likely basically yeah yep uh any other points you want to make phil i'm pretty good um i don't think so do we want to discuss uh ronald fisher's uh smoking thing yeah yeah let's take some time to rip on ronald fisher so he's (laughs) he's the guy um who Fernando, you might remember from the, the signal in the noise, he's the guy Nate Silver rips on for, for pushing frequentist statistics over Bayesian statistics. I do, um, yes, I do remember Despite that. a lot of, yeah. Well, Nate in particular, like, really right, goes after right. him. 
So, so I want I want to give some some like defense to to Ronald um, before we before we dive into uh, the the one stain on his legacy. Um, but but Ronald Fisher was uh, like a pretty interesting guy, and he he basically made he basically made up modern or not modern but classical statistics. And so um, when you say made up, he, he created he he developed it. Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't say made up. He uh, laid laid some critical foundations uh, along with a few other people for um, what what is what we call today classical statistics. And um, the most significant contributions that he made were were at this place called like Rothamsted, which was a sort of agricultural outpost in the middle of England. And uh, what he did there was he, I don't know how he got this assignment, but he went there and uh, looked at crops. And he was very interested in just these different types of, uh, of uh, just, I don't know, like, yeah, agricultural products. And so he would vary different things about them. He would like change the soil. He would change the seed type. He would change the fertilizer. He would note the weather. And he uh, developed something called experimental design, which is what drives a lot of the food production that we have today. So the reason that like an ear of corn, for example, is like twice as large today as it was like maybe 50 years ago is, is due in, in large part to Ronald Fisher's work where he basically taught people how to set up these different experiments. Um, and so he created things like, uh, like the F distribution. Um, he created analysis of variance, analysis of covariance, uh, linear discriminant analysis. Um, and is you could make a claim that he is probably the most significant statistician uh, to date, um, but he did have one uh, fairly contentious uh, belief regarding the impact of smoking on lung cancer. And I don't know if, uh, and I will note that uh, uh, Fisher was an avid pipe t- pipe tobacco smoker, um, and then <laughs> Ethan, Ethan, I'll let you. Uh, <laughs> Kind of yeah, well, I don't know all the details because I, I I reread this passage from the book a couple of days ago. But my understanding is basically um, uh, by applying frequentism only to the the evidence that he had about smoking, he was convinced that there was no proof smoking was causal in yeah. long term disease, specifically cancer. Um, despite I think if you had applied a more Bayesian framework where you said that like in general a lot of people are having these problems later in life after smoking you could say overall the evidence should sway you but because there were no particular experiments done there were no true randomized tests yeah. uh, frequentism did not work very well to study the subject and so so basically this guy just goes to his deathbed insisting that smoking <laughs> is not actually a problem and uh, that belief has aged very poorly <laughs> So one, uh, yeah, one, one really interesting thing is that with uh, classical statistics, uh, all the inference that you're conducting is like, um, it's like correlation inference. And the only way that you can conduct what's called causal inference, which is where you can say like this particular action directly led to some outcome, is if you conduct uh, what Ethan just mentioned, and that's a randomized experiment, where you randomly assign different people to different uh, treatment groups, and you just, you just see what happens. Um, and so... Obviously, for ethical reasons, if we believe that uh, tobacco <laughs> smoke causes cancer, we're not going to randomly assign people uh, to different smoking groups and then say like, oh, like um, you thousand people from you know, the state of Ohio, you, you smoke, you thousand people yeah. from the state of Texas, you don't smoke, let's see what happens. <laughs> Um, so we, that would actually wouldn't be random because of the States, yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but we, they never did that. And so, uh, Fisher was just would not believe that, that smoking caused cancer because there had never been a, uh, 
true randomized um, experiment done. And and to be in in his defense, you know, we didn't have the you know the period of time afterwards where all the smokers got lung cancer, and and you kind of start to question uh, Fisher's assertion that maybe they all just have these innate characteristics that yeah. uh, the type of person who likes to smoke is also the type of person who just winds up with lung cancer. <laughs> I will say though, it, it's it's funny you bring that up because there are these cases of like uh, correlation being mistaken for causation with other things that are not so different. Um, so one example I heard recently is that uh, if you drink tea you're a lot more likely to have stomach problems. And if you really think about that, you can you can quickly figure out that the causation is probably going in the opposite mm-hmm. direction, where people who have stomach problems are drinking tea because it's like a calming uh, yeah. like yeah. supplement to their diet. And it is not insane for people to have done that with smoking, but we have pretty good evidence <laughs> at this point that's not what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a book that came out maybe, I think last year, it's called Why, and it's by a pretty notable computer scientist named Judea Pearl, and he invented uh, what are called Bayesian networks, which in the field of artificial intelligence um, were pretty significant in the 80s. I'm not, I'm not sure now, um, but yeah, his, his big critique of statisticians is this insistence that unless you have a randomized experiment that... Um, uh, you can't say that something's causal, and he thinks this is absurd. Um, where if you're drinking tea and your stomach hurts, well, there there is some element of cause that that maybe maybe because your stomach consistently hurts, you are drinking tea. Maybe it's not just correlated. Um, yeah. But I stopped reading the book after two chapters because I found it <laughs> annoying. Uh, <laughs> the real problem, though, like like the the biggest frustration of this causation problem is that. If you have two things that are correlated, the causation might be neither of them. There might yeah. be a hidden third factor that is causal of both. Yeah. And so very quickly determining causation just becomes an extremely complicated problem. And like it, it's a reasonable critique to say that a lot of modern statistics has trouble in these pro- in these cases. Yeah. But like it's just the nature of things. You can't determine causation because you can't know how right. the correlation is I happening. I think it's uh, it's kind of obvious like why that gives value to Bayesian thinking in terms of like your personal life where you might have you know relatively rare events and you're trying to figure out how they should change your worldview or your perception of something but it also um points out i think a possible weakness of frequentism to a field like economics where you know it seems like it's very big it's like it's very data driven but um you can't set certain conditions and run a quote experiment and then rewind to the original um conditions and like they'll never be independent, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, correct. So, so you're making these assumptions that are probably not true. Right. Yeah. yeah. Economists will usually rely on something called like an it's called an instrumental variable, and so they'll look for like natural um, natural experiments that just occur in the world. Um, and so uh, there's one branch called like family economics, and like maybe uh, students in a school district are get like, given a lottery to be in a particular type of magnet school. And that lottery constitutes a, a random treatment. Um, but aside from that, like their their tools are pretty limited. Yeah, there's not a lot of lotteries, unfortunately. That yeah. would really help. But yeah. And one other thing I'll bring up about the the strength of uh, Bayesian reasoning and in some areas where frequentism can present problems. Um, so we talked about p-value hacking before, and essentially what's happening in in p-value hacking is um, the test that frequentism is doing is saying, what are the chances that a result like this would have occurred by pure chance? Like, really, all my data is just totally random, and yet I got this finding. 
Um, And so you set your p-value to be a small number to say, like, I need very strong evidence so this occurs by chance only a small percentage of the time. So if your p-value is 0.05 or 5%, that means that it would only occur by chance 5% of the time. Now, the problem with that is if you test enough things, in fact, 20 things, you would expect to get one thing that occurs by chance. Uh, And that will show up in, like, classical frequentist statistics as a, a positive finding, which is, of course, probably not the case. It's probably noise. So if you test, what, 400 different things, you will get 20 positives. But in fact, that's exactly what you would expect from sheer randomness. Yeah. Um, if you approach this with more of a Bayesian mindset and went in with priors, you might say it's very unlikely that any two random things are correlated. You know, it's very unlikely that people's height is correlated with, I don't know, the color shoes that they wear. You know, if you tested everything about people to see if there's anything correlated about their attributes, you know, certain things are very unlikely to be correlated in your prior estimation. And that can help you reverse the, or not reverse, but it can help you avoid the effects of purely looking at everything as two random things um, that could be correlated or not. And the formula would also um, have a factor for the occurrence of what is in this case a false positive which is just like oh well if there's this many different color options of shoes and this is like the range of heights you kind of know what the natural occurrence would be and that's already part of the uh basic formula right that's true but there's there's so many different combinations i think that number actually would be small it it essentially comes down to the same problem as frequentism in that case yeah one one interesting thing to to note about that is that when when a lot of these concepts were being developed, so like when Neyman and uh, Pearson were developing the idea of a hypothesis test and p-value, there really wasn't a situation, there wasn't a scenario where you were going to be conducting 20 tests, right? Because like today, if you if you conduct something like a test on the data that Ethan and I were looking at, um, it's really trivial using the software that exists today to to do that. We could probably whip that up in about 15 minutes. Um, but if you think about like trying to do this in like 1937. And you know you don't have a computer, or the computer is like a, you know, the size of a library, and it consists of vacuum tubes. Um, you know, you're you're going to be doing this by hand, collecting the data by hand, doing all the calculations like that, and it's it's fairly time consuming. And so I think when these guys created this, you know, it's like uh, that that p-value threshold that's often used of 0.05 came from uh, Ronald Fisher, and I don't think he put all that much thought into it. Like he just just started using 0.05, and in his mind, it was probably like, oh, like there's no situation where I'd be conducting 20 tests, um, because for him, it's like he's waiting an entire crop season for something to finish. Um, but today, you know, like uh, the big, uh, I think, culprit of this is like psychology research, where you can just grab like 15 undergrads and throw them into a lab, <laughs> and you know, get some get some results. Well, if you just do that enough times over the course of a semester. Um, then you're going to wind up with something meaningful, or at least something that appears meaningful. And that's where that's where a lot of this criticism comes from. And this, uh, I don't want to get into this whole topic, but this is also linked to the replicability, replicability? Yeah. Reproducibility crisis, um, which is that a lot of studies and journals cannot be reproduced on a second try. And it's because of this, largely, because... Basically, you know, 10,000 tests have been tried in the history of the world and a few thousand have come up positive, but many of those are false positives. It's ultimately the same effect as the uh, breast cancer screening we were talking about earlier. It's actually the same problem of false positives. So right now we're finding that because we don't publish studies that find no correlation between things, so like failed tests, we have no way to disprove all the false positives that we are seeing in journals. Yep. 
and, and the journals incentivize people to be looking for things. Um, and so it's like if you yeah. know that your entire career is predicated on you publishing stuff and you have to basically look and dig to find something that, that can be publishable, your, your incentives are, are kind of messed up there. Yeah, not a great system. Okay. Um, Fernando, you want to take us out? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's statistics and hopefully it's <laughs> 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 not supposed to be a complete thought, but that was statistics. Um, and also hopefully some ways of how we can apply it and how we can be a little more judicious about reading, um, whether that's something in an article or reading about a study, kind of understanding what it all means and where the flaws or strengths might be. Um, I don't have a stats background as much as these other guys do. And I think it was maybe even more useful for me to kind of have a base level understanding of how data is interpreted because um, that really does affect how I think about it. Mm, I know Ethan's got an article nearing completion. Do you want to tease that a little bit? Uh, yeah, what am I working on? Oh yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you forget. You just have a lot of things. So going many on articles. <laughs> yeah, so many. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm working on a piece uh, just discussing the the merits of the um, the measures we use to assess countries. So mainly economic measures like GDP and what some alternatives might be. Um, and exploring one in particular called gross national happiness and the success that one country that has implemented it has had, um, and how it might be different if we tried something like that. I think Matt also has an article, right? That might be on the horizon. Mm, yes, he does. I don't know what it is. No, it's okay. We gotta we gotta leave the listeners in suspense. We totally remember what the article <laughs> is. And we don't want to tell you. Yeah, uh, really strong statement of dedication from the editorial team right here. But I hope you at least uh, hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you're not too discouraged by that ending. And uh, stick around for the next article on podcasts.